When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hey everybody, Seth Meyers here. Welcome to another edition of Late Night Lit, our monthly podcast series celebrating books and authors. Here to discuss what's new in the world of books is Late Night's own literary expert, Sarah Jenks Daly. Take it away, Sarah. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Jenks Daly and welcome to Late Night Lit. This month, we're featuring conversations with two fantastic guests. Michelle Hart, author of the moving new novel, We Do What We Do in the Dark, and Rakesh Satyal, who is both an executive editor at Harper One HarperCollins and an award-winning novelist. Plus, actor Hugh Dancy tells us what book he recommends for your next read. Our first conversation is with author Michelle Hart, whose exceptional debut novel, We Do What We Do in the Dark, was published earlier this month. The book is one Michelle has been working on for years, and it tells the story of a young woman named Mallory, who, while struggling with grief and loneliness, enters into an affair with an older female professor at her university. We speak about Michelle's former life as a books editor at Oprah Magazine, her interest in exploring themes like desire and identity from a queer female perspective, and how, in some ways, Michelle's own life informed the novel. Now here's my conversation with Michelle Hart. Hello, everyone. We're here with Michelle Hart. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We Do What We Do in the Dark is your debut novel, and it is fantastic. But I read that before you became a published author, you actually worked in the larger literary world in a few different capacities. Is that right? Yes, many, many different capacities. (laughs) What were some of the specific jobs that you had prior to becoming a full-fledged author? Directly before the publication of the book, I worked for about three and a half years as the assistant books editor at Oprah Magazine, which was really fun and just sort of, you know, surreal and kind of like like a pinch me dream, you know, getting the chance to read and write about books for Oprah was like, like really cool. You know, she basically, you know, got me into reading. You know, I used to go to, the, I remember going to like, remember Borders? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Borders books. Every book that had like the Oprah Book Club stamp on it, I would pick up. And so it was kind of crazy to just work there for her. 
Before that, I was a fiction reader at The New Yorker. I was an adjunct professor at Rutgers. I did marketing for a kid's comic book company. I was freelance writing for all these different websites. So like, I guess I've done it from every angle. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. One of the uh, great things about my job is, is how many books I get to read and how many fantastic books are on my radar without me having to actually search for them. Mm-hmm. So I imagine as a books editor, you had a similar experience. Yeah, we were getting like 30 books a day, like delivered to our office, Um, you know, and it was a very small team. It was just me and the books editor, my boss, and we were sort of tasked with sorting through all these books. And I know, like the old adage is to not judge a book by its cover. But like, how can you not do that? Right? Like, like, at a certain point, there has to be some kind of weeding out thing that happens. If you were getting 30 a day, how many were you reading a week? Well, you know, it was rare that I read a full book. And I hate to admit that, like, (laughs) that seems like awful to admit. But I mean, you develop a muscle that sort of, you understand very quickly whether something is is sort of worth it or not, right? Um, Right. At least for me. Unofficially, I had like a 10% rule, you know, so like, if a book was like 300 pages, I would give it 30 pages. And if it didn't totally hook me by then, you know, and like, that sucks, actually, like, that's kind of unfair in some ways, because, you know, some books are slow burns, you know, some books only sort of come into their own, you know, deep into the actual story. Um, but just because uh, magazines are so fast paced, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this too, you know, where it's just the sheer volume makes it such that, you know, you, you can't really devote the time that you would like to, you know, even books you feel lukewarm about. But yeah, you know, so I would probably go through about 10 books a day. Wow, that's a lot. That's a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah. We Do What We Do in the Dark is a story about a young woman, Mallory, dealing with grief, and she embarks upon this affair with a female professor. Can you start with the genesis of the idea? Because I read that in part, you'd been working on this story for a long time since you were actually a college student yourself. Did you start it when you were in college? I did, yeah. You know, um, as you know, the the middle section of the book is actually a flashback, like an extended flashback, and and sort of looks at the main character Mallory's childhood, and you know her dealing with her mom being sick and her best friend leaving for college, her only friend really going away to college, and this sort of strange friendship thing that she develops with her next door neighbor's mom. And that was actually the section that I wrote first. I I started writing that when I was in college. I was in the closet and my mom had just died. And so these two things like learning who I was and learning how to live without the woman who gave me life, you know, these two things were profound and hard. And the only way that I could sort of make sense of them was to turn them into like a fictional story, right? That's what's satisfying about stories and narratives is that they often make sense of nonsensical things, right? We need that narrative to see, you know, the pattern of life. And and so that really helped me when I was, you know, a, a junior in college. 
some of the stuff that ends up in the final draft of the book that you've read is actually stuff that I wrote in college. And I don't mean to say that, like, to pat myself on the back, like, what a wonderkind I am, right? <laughs> but the book really, really took off in its current shape when um, I was in graduate school. I went to Rutgers to get my MFA, and I was living in the Upper East Side of New York across the street from this really decrepit gym, as there are abundance of in New York. Absolutely. And I was adjuncting at Rutgers at the time. And, and so my schedule was very strange. And so I ended up going to the gym a lot during the day. I remember one day uh, walking into the gym and starting to do my exercise. And then this woman walked in. You know, I was single, you know, and she I found her really, really sort of alluring and attractive. And it's hard to articulate like what it was about her. But she got on the treadmill in front of me. And I would have pegged her, I guess, maybe her late 30s, early 40s. You know, she was really fit, like she was in really great shape. And like she, like you could see the, the muscles in her back. But when she turned around, there was this sort of look of sadness about her. And I found that, I think, most compelling of all, where, you know, here was this woman who was in really great shape and sort of seemed to have her life together. But like, there was still this like melancholy about her. You know, I was I was a single graduate student, you know, like in a 1999 a month gym, and I was sort of feeling kind of sad too about life, and and I sort of started thinking like, oh, you know, maybe she could teach me how she does it, right? Like she could sort of, you know, she she could be some sort of exemplar about how to live gracefully with sadness. I I know that's a really weird thought to have about another. No, person, it's very but, interesting. But yeah, you know, and so I noted the time on my iPod and it was like 4 p.m. I, I went back to the gym at 4 p.m. every day for the next two months and I never, ever saw her again. I felt so sad about like this missed connection. You know, I was like, why? Like, I don't even, I don't even know this woman. Like, I, she could have been a jerk. Like, she could have been awful. She could have been straight. You know, she could have been all these things, you know, what was it about her that, you know, I, I found myself hung up on. So in order to like, I guess, preserve that feeling, which was a very strong feeling, I started I guess right essentially writing fan fiction about me <laughs> about me and her uh you know like what adventures would we get up to you know just the two of us and that's sort of how the book then really took off in its its current iteration <laughs> so that was Mallory's journey instead of yours in a way yeah for sure for sure the female professor is only referred to in the book as the woman. And I'm sure you get this question quite a bit from either early readers or interviews like this. But why was it important to you not to name her? And then alternately, I was wondering if she was named in earlier drafts. Yes, but I will never reveal what the name was. Okay. <laughs> I initially have written the affair part of the book almost like a fable, right? Where it was basically the two characters were the woman and the girl, right? Even Mallory didn't have a name at some point. 
And I really liked how that came out, the sort of fairy tale lilt that it had, where it was just sort of, you know, it could be any girl, it could be any woman, you know, it was sort of archetypal in that sense. And, you know, naming them the girl and the woman allowed me to play around with those roles, right? So like, you know, she was a girl and and she was a woman. And sometimes the woman was a girl and sometimes the girl acted more like a woman. And so it was kind of fun to sort of play around like that. But ultimately, you know, when it came to expanding the story into a novel, it got kind of hard to just say the girl and the woman and the girl and the woman, you know, over and over again, it sort of felt annoying. And so I landed on Mallory. Um, I think I was watching a women's soccer game and I, I really like Mallory Pugh. She's one of the my favorite She's players. A great player. She's a great player, right? And mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, you know, I like the name Mallory. Um, and I guess maybe like in an egotistical way, kind of close to Michelle. So I, <laughs> so I kind of was like able to weasel my way in there. But, you know, when it came time to name the woman, it was really hard because names have this way of like making a character more mundane, but also like the name itself becomes really significant. What name could I find that strikes that balance between significance and mundanity, right? I tried out various different names and none of them really worked and none of them really conveyed who the woman was. And so I started thinking like, well, you know, to Mallory, she would always be the woman, right? Like she's this sort of platonic ideal of womanhood, specifically for Mallory, maybe not for for readers, for most readers, you know, but for, for Mallory, she she represents the pinnacle of like, an artistic woman, right? So so then it became like, I kind of liked the idea of just having her sort of remain the woman, right? Like she's not just a woman, she's the woman. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of it. The title of the book, I think, comes from a conversation that Mallory and, and the woman have in the book and something the woman says to her. Yeah. My question is kind of a chicken or an egg question. Did that title arrive before the conversation in your mind or did the conversation inform the title? That's a really good question, honestly. Um, I think it was probably maybe a little bit of both, but I think the conversation came and then I was like, oh, well, this is like the thesis of the book, so I might as well title it. That line just came to me. And so for me, it really encapsulated what the book is about, right? Where, Where these two people are sort of sharing this experience of having their formative romantic and sexual relationships occur in secret, right? Which is a very common experience for women and especially queer women, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, women are so often told to like hide our lust, right? And so our first brush with desire is often, you know, in the dark. Um, As soon as people read the conversation with the woman where she says this line, it immediately clicks like, oh yeah, that definitely has to be the title. At times, I thought that the feelings of loneliness that Mallory is, is consumed by in both relationship with the woman and then her friendship and dealing with grief over her mother's passing were almost palpable. And I think regardless of what any one individual or reader of the book has experienced with relationships, I wanted to know, do you feel that loneliness and the desire that you that you mentioned to be seen by someone else is something that's often experienced and maybe less often written about? 
Yeah, I think so. I think it's also very uniquely queer, right, is sort of to feel like connection is just totally impossible, you know, and that the impossibility of this connection is because of your identity, right? Like where it's almost like there's something about queerness that inherently prohibits meaningful connection. Um, I think that that obviously is like 100% untrue. Um, And I think a lot of relationships come, you know, queer relationships come from a place of two people or more getting past that initial fear of connection, you know, and, and making a connection with with one another. Um, But I do think that like, it's a very uniquely queer kind of loneliness to just kind of think that your identity is incompatible with happiness. And, you know, how that plays out in people's lives is very different. You know, like some of us seek out situations that we know are gonna make us unhappy, because that's what we think, you know, we deserve, you know, even when I was, quote, unquote, straight, you know, even when I was in relationships with guys, there was this, this thing missing, obviously, and it took me a while to figure out what that thing was. But, you know, it didn't necessarily go away when I started dating women, right? It's kind of that feeling of your your sexuality is like an experience that only you have. So it's kind of like an isolating experience. Um, it is palpable, but I also really wanted to like dispel that idea. Oh, well, you do a great job. Thank you. I'd love to end with a book recommendation if you have one for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So I guess time to when this episode might drop. Um, There's a book that's coming out at the end of May called Yerba Buena. And it's this really, you know, talk about like, you know, queer loneliness and two people finding connection despite all the odds. It's by this woman named Nina LaCour. And and she's kind of gotten prominence as like a YA author. And this is billed as like her first adult book. I don't know if that distinction is like meaningful at all. But, um, you know, to judge a book by its cover, it also has a really beautiful cover. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's just, you know, the story of these two lost souls who find each other. Um, It's just like a really simple, very stirring, really sexy, kind of sad story about two people finding each other. So I would highly recommend Yerba Buena. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. After the break, we're joined by author and editor Rakesh Satyal. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Rakesh Satyal is an editor, novelist, and full transparency here, a friend I've been fortunate to have known for almost 20 years. Rakesh's illustrious career in publishing has spanned over two decades, and he has worked with such authors as Michael Arsenault, Common, 
Tori Amos, Daniel Lavery, and many others. He is also the author of two beautiful and award-winning novels, Blue Boy and No One Can Pronounce My Name. Rakesh chats with us about his role as an executive editor at Harper One, the changes he has witnessed in the publishing world, the advice he gives to writers, and the kind of stories he wants to tell. Now here's my conversation with Rakesh. We're here with Rakesh Satyal. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Rakesh, I think it's only fair to start off the interview with the caveat that we are very familiar with each other, and hopefully because of our friendship, this conversation will not go completely off the rails. I think because of our friendship, it may go completely off the rails, but that's that's up to you. that's what editing's for, I guess. (laughs) So I'd love to start with just your work. And you, like many authors that we've had on the show and the podcast, began your career in publishing while also pursuing your own literary endeavors. I want to talk about both, but let's start with your day job. Can you tell us about what you do and where you are? Yes. So I'm an executive editor currently at the Harper One Group, which is part of HarperCollins. Um, it is uh, a group uh, composed of four different imprints. Basically, there's the Harper One flagship imprint, there's Amistad, there's Harper Via, and then HarperCollins Espanol. And so for each of those lists, I acquire something a little bit different. I, I do what is called narrative nonfiction mainly for, for those lists. Uh, that's what would be, you know, memoir or, you know, celebrity memoir or narrative history or social history or cultural history, things in that, that vein. Um, you know, essay collections, things like that. So I do, uh, that primarily for the Harper One list as well as those, those other lists. And then I do some fiction for both Amistad and Harper Via. So it's a wide-ranging list. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an editor, I think maybe you've covered this with other guests that you've had. But, you know, an editor, people often imagine a copy editor. They think, you know, pencil behind the ear, uh, <laughs> doing the kind of old-fashioned way of, of line editing. And we do that, to be clear, in as part of our job. But the editor's job is really being a liaison among the author, the agent, the in-house teams of publicity, marketing, sales, and then eventually the readership. So it's a lot of coordination. It's a lot of projects in different states of the process. A question that I think Seth hears frequently from visitors to late night and also aspiring writers is, how did you start? And I know you yourself wanted to work in publishing, but you're also a published author. And I know you also wanted to write. So how did you begin your pursuit of both of those things simultaneously? And and maybe did you even see them tied together at all, like at the beginning? You know, it's a really good question because both writing and publishing share something in common, I think both in my personal experience and then culturally as they're described to us. So for example, I was a very bookish person. I studied literature in college. It wasn't until um, my sophomore spring of being in a creative writing class that my teacher even suggested publishing or editing as a job. And I think this is true of many people. I didn't think to think it was a job, you know, because, again, culturally, we minimize the pursuit of the arts, even if it's in a corporatized environment like corporate publishing. So I didn't really consider that as being something that was available to me. Similarly, even though I was in a creative writing class and I had written my whole life, Frankly, I didn't think of myself as a writer until I was holding my first published book in my hands, because I think there's so much self-doubt that gets indoctrinated because of the way that we think or don't think about these things as being legitimate pursuits. So I moved to New York. I started working in publishing immediately because I had interned for my eventual boss when I was between junior and senior years of college. 
So I started working in publishing immediately. And, you know, again, I felt, I felt good at the job and I felt, you know, well suited to do the job. And yet there was this surreal aspect of being like, oh, this is what my job is after college. I mean, I just, again, it just didn't register fully for me. But, you know, I worked really hard in that job and then I started writing on the side. But again, I was writing in the way that many of us do, which is, you know, as a hobby and thinking, okay, let's see where this leads. And then, you know, it became a bit more concrete as I got farther into that process. So, you know, those two things happened simultaneously and they informed each other, but they did again share that doubt that was sort of ingrained in them from the very beginning. Oh, that's so interesting. Now that you've been in publishing for I don't want to age you, but uh, a few years. <laughs> what do you think is the biggest change that you've seen in the industry? And hopefully it's positive, but if not, I'd love to hear either. You know, well, to state maybe the obvious thing, it's been formats, what, what's become popular for people in, in terms of formats. So, you know, for a long time there was ebooks, and that had been, you know, a great addition to publishing. I think people were really worried about ebooks and whether or not, you know, they, the publishing industry would sustain having ebooks. And of course, there have been examples of things that would topple publishing in the past that clearly did not. And then, you know, with the rise of the podcast revolution, audiobooks became incredibly popular again. And so, um, in many cases, you know, we see, for example, if you have somebody who has a large platform as an author, as a performer, especially, you'll see almost a one-to-one comparison sometimes in physical books and ebooks sold for them. So really? that's, a, that's a major wow. change. Um, you know, I think a lot is, has been said about lack of diversity in publishing. And, you know, as a, you know, a queer Indian person myself, I've seen that from a personal perspective over the past 20 years. So I do think, you know, stride, there's always going to be room for improvement, but I do, I'm very inspired by a lot of the editors I see coming into publishing who are, you know, who represent a diverse background and who are changing that conversation. So again, there's always going to be room for improvement. But I do think that's that's made a difference, not in just in terms of the makeup of publishing houses, you know, but also in terms of the books that really we publish and the efforts that we put into publishing them. So I think those are two things that have shifted. And I think, you know, Again, in a, in a broader sense, in the past few years, we've just seen some really exciting things happen in kind of mainstream publishing with format and structure. You know, I mean, I, in terms of the the style and structure that authors are using to craft their books, and so that seems to be accelerating exponentially. You know, so I think that's also exciting to to see. That's so interesting because I don't think that's something I ever would have noticed before, but I think because I do read so much for this job, and I'm sure you read so many books for yours, but you do actually see trends in terms of how people write. Yes, that's right. You do. You do. You start to see, you know, it's funny, I was asked this question recently about um, books that I feel like in this past 20-year period reflect uh, a kind of sea change or a kind of major moment in publishing. And I think like one author I, I mentioned um, who I think has been just a real touchstone for people is Carmen Maria Machado. You know, those two books, Her Body and Other Parties in, in the Dream House. And Her Body and Other Parties is a story collection. It's formally inventive. It's 
It's voice driven in a variety of ways. It's, you know, very queer and, um, you know, and it's both a creative, um, success and a, and a kind of commercial one, especially for Grey Wolf, the independent publisher who published it, who's an amazing publisher. And it's just such a great exemplar of how to publish a book with such a level of care and intent and a story collection, which, you know, historically in publishing, they can be more difficult to publish. And so the fact that it really became this, um, success and that so many people cite that book or in the dream house, her memoir also published by Grey Wolf, which again, it takes this conceit, a very, very experimental conceit and really fresh and new and kind of redefines it. And what I tell people is it's not just when I see people reading those books or talking about those books on a much more specific level, when we're in our meetings in the publishing house, when we're launching a list for the upcoming season, or we have a sales conference coming up, oftentimes what we discuss in those meetings is something called comp titles or comparison titles. So other books within the industry that have proven success you can cite as being in the same ballpark as the title you might be discussing currently. And it became very clear to me and others in the room that her work was being cited a lot by other editors who were talking about books they were publishing, not because they saw commercial success there only. I mean, that was the reason why a lot of them were, but because tonally there was something similar in terms of what other writers were trying to do in their work or other books that were being published. So that's really exciting to see something instructive like that in real time as people are really, you know, um, coming to that work. And so, you know, you could say that about other writers, like Britt Bennett is an example, or, you know, there the other writers that come up, and then you just see other work that's finally been kind of given a, a way forward, and that writers are writing at that point in time. Yeah, that's very cool. So you've also written two novels, Blue Boy and No One Can Pronounce My Name, both of which are spectacular. I'm not biased at all. Everyone should pick them up. I know you're at work on a third, and I wanted to ask about the writing process. Like Now that you've done it a couple of times, have you found that it's any easier, or is it always hard because writing a book is hard? You know, it is always hard, I think. <laughs> but but th- this is the thing I, I think about a lot because I see this with my authors and my job often. I think, oddly enough, we've both romanticized and vilified the process of being tortured about writing. So that that sounds uh, counterintuitive, but I think we've romanticized being tortured about it. And so it is a very difficult process. It takes you in a million different directions. It tests your patience and your self-worth and all of these things that are very true. But I do think you know, when people ask me what to do about writer's block, what I often say to them is try to write a sentence, one sentence that surprises you. And I think and when you feel that surprise, what that is, is a form of entertaining yourself. And I do think it's supposed to be enjoyable in that way. I think it's more time management that's difficult, I think, for many of us, um, more so than the mechanics of it, which is very difficult. But I think just clearing the space and time, especially given the past couple of years, it was like, you know, we thought we had a lot of time available to us, but it had, what does that mean? What is the quality of that time? So I think that comes with it. But I also think, you know, it's, it should be something that you enjoy doing. And that I think finding it in the creativity is the thing that you, that you need. So, you know, in terms of working on something new, I think you have to think about the larger themes that you want to be exploring within the work. Again, this is something that I tell my authors, or I tell prospective authors. 
it can feel almost too self-aggrandizing to think, okay, what are the big questions I'm trying to answer in this work that I'm working on? Or what are the big themes I'm trying to explore? But those will be your true north when you find yourself in those moments where you don't know how to move forward. And what, what am I really trying to say? What are the themes I'm really trying to capture? What am I trying to move forward in the kind of conversation around books and writing? And so I think defining those things for you at the beginning of the process and doing a gut check as you go on can be incredibly helpful. Well, that actually leads me to my next question, because I was going to ask you about themes for yourself and how you write in both Blue Boy and No One Can Pronounce My Name, your main characters struggle with identity. And I think loneliness and the loneliness that comes with exclusion or racism or not understanding where they fit in. Why are those themes so interesting to you and something that you want to write about? I think, you know, there is this constant need, I think, in fiction to figure out how people see themselves. And I think there's this reflexive movement that happens, which is that by ruminating as an author, the rumination finds its way onto a page. And I think that's why those are those are themes that obviously are very important in my life and something I want to explore. I also think, you know, with Blue Boy, the 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 way I see it is that in many ways, I was trying to write something, because many writers will say this, they were trying to write the book they wished they'd had when they were younger. And I think in that case, it was like, I had not read a queer Indian narrative that had done for me what I was trying to do in that book. And so I think, again, you try to create what's not necessarily available to you to sort of complete the sentence of the world, so to speak, you know, so I think that's what was going on in that in that process. Um, so I think, you know, we 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 kind of strive for that and strive to find those themes in the work uh, to to create that space for ourselves. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, you just want to find what's also compelling from a narrative standpoint that these questions that you want to uh, explore that allow other people to see the world in the way that you're seeing it. And I think that's the constant challenge you have as a writer. So I think, you know, I, I also believe those things very strongly. It's like, you know, again, those are all part of the same conversation, which is I want people to think about those things more. And so that's why I put it in the work. Aside from reading and our other mutually shared obsessions that I don't need to delve into here, we are both longtime fans of Grey's Anatomy. And you just announced a very exciting memoir that you're working on from a former Grey's Anatomy cast member, perhaps better known for film work, like League of Their Own. Can you talk about uh, Gina Davis? I can. We just announced it yesterday, actually. I'm not sure when this is airing, but just know that it was the day after that we announced it. So yeah, I'm, I'm working on Gina Davis's memoir, Dying of Politeness. Uh, as you might imagine, she's just a, really a joy and so smart and brilliant and funny. You know, I think that's one thing I think was really important to her in the book is to just convey how, how much of a sense of humor she has. And I think, um, you know, the, the thing that makes the book extremely compelling is that I think people rightfully have the idea of her as being this really confident, um, you know, self-possessed, um, brilliant woman who's, you know, she, through her foundation, has advocated for gender parity and equality in Hollywood. And she won the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award from the Academy for, for that work. And, and she's very much that person. I mean, she's, she's really, uh, a force for good and has that kind of strength and confidence. But at the same time, for a lot of her career and a lot of her, you know, early life, she felt ingratiated to, uh, towards other people in a way that felt self-effacing. And I think that occurs to many, with many people who are creative, and especially women who are in Hollywood. 
And so that comes across the kind of ways that she had to engage with that over the course of her career and then emerge this icon that she really is. So I think people really enjoy the book and I think they will just see a side of her that is just, again, incredibly charming and very forthcoming and, um, and uh, uplifting. I can't wait to read it. So I want to end with, <laughs> I would love to know if you have a book recommendation that uh, you want to share with our listeners. Yeah, I'm in August, uh, I'm publishing the new novel by Megan Giddings, uh, who wrote a really striking novel called Lakewood um, that kept, came out a couple of years ago. Many people in that novel came out compared her work to the work of Jordan Peele, uh, because it's very cross-genre. It's... it's um, uh, it's very voice-driven in a, a really assured way. And this new book is called The Women Could Fly, and it takes place in a near future in which uh, women, when they turn 30, if they're unmarried, they're um, surveilled by the state as being suspected of being witches. And the kind of twist of the story is that they are, in fact, real in the story. And um, the the narrator, Joe, is just such a kind of a, has a mordant sense of humor, is just really, really smart, and again, kind of trying to find her way in the world. Uh, and she's bisexual and biracial and um, just represents this amazing amalgam of feelings and uh, and thoughts. And I and Megan is just such a, an amazing writer on the line level, and uh, it feels incredibly cinematic when you're reading it. Um, so I'm I'm really thrilled for her. It's a step forward for her, I think, as a writer. And I think it will just be one of those books. Again, what I was talking about that I think people will think of in sight going forward as being uh, really revelatory. So that's The Women Can Fly by Megan Giddings. It feels very cinematic when you're talking about it. Yeah, she's just a wonderful writer. Rakesh, thank you so much for joining us. It was so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. And it was great to talk to you too. Each month, we like to ask late night guests to share with us what they've been reading. And this month, actor Hugh Dancy tells us what book he recommends for your next read. Hi, this is Hugh Dancy. I am recommending a book called Bunny by Mona Awad, published in 2019. I'm recommending it for the exact reason that I read it, which is that a friend called me up and said, please read this uh, and help me understand what the hell to make of it. Um, very briefly, it's about a, a young woman um, studying to be a writer who becomes involved with a clique of other uh, women in her course. It is a horror. It is a gothic romance of sorts. It's a fairy tale, I suppose. It's a satire of a creative writing postgrad course. And it's extremely funny. And somehow the author manages to combine these uh, unruly elements into into a hole that makes it very clear that she's in full control of them all. I really enjoyed it and I believe you will too. And if you figure it out, please, uh, please get in touch. This has been Late Night Lit. My thanks to Seth Myers, Mike Shoemaker, Michelle Hart, Rakesh Satyal, Matt Ryman, Jay Johnson, and Ross Lupold. Our theme music was written and performed by the 8G Band. For Late Night with Seth Meyers, I'm Sarah Jenks Daly. Thanks for listening. Please support local and independent booksellers, and happy reading. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. 
You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.